to do is while we're giving shout outs to folks, we have an internet, uh, what do we call our groups? Fellowship group. Fellowship group that is headed up by Tom Cushing out in one of the Dakotas, north or south, I always get it confused. Um, and, and they actually watch on the internet and converse and meet and fellowship via the internet. I think Tom's going to try and come down here live uh, one time this spring, we hope, and we'll introduce him if he does. But he heads that up, and we just want to give them a shout-out, which means also a shout-out to all of the people on the internet team, all of the audiovisual people, all of the people back in the sound booth. Thank you guys for what you do. You extend the thumbprint of our class uh, around the, the, the globe. So thank you. Yeah, thank you guys. Amen. Thank you so much. It is a joy to be here. It is a joy to get to teach, especially when I am in trial. So right now we're in trial in Dallas, Texas. Dr. Bob and I, after class, will be headed back up there to go uh, uh, back into the trenches and and fight the the war that's in front of us. A number of you pray for us uh, when we're in trial. We thank you for that. Our prayer is for justice and for the right to happen and for the jury to see the truth and the judge to see the truth and for us to uh, be vessels of, of truth. So pray for us, and, and we are deeply appreciative of that. Part of what I do as a lawyer includes what I did Friday afternoon. I put on the witness stand a doctor named Tony Nargal. He is an orthopedic surgeon from England. And what I did is I put his CV on the Elmo, on the overhead, so that I could go through it with him before the jury. Now, that's just part of a trial, and that's part of dealing with witnesses, especially experts. And it was kind of the, the, the guiding theme or light to the series that we're doing right now. If I had a CV, which is, it stands for Curriculum Vitae, which is Latin for the course of life. If we had something that set out the, the resume or the course of God's life, God's CV... What might we examine it and learn about God that would then teach us about us and the world in which we live? So that was the, the, the focus behind this study. You're coming in to the fourth lesson in the study. And this is a lesson which I want to get in the flow of where we've been, but I need to immediately get into the new material for us to be able to get through it. Regrettably, if you get an email version of the lesson... And I, I had to write it yesterday morning because I was in court all week. Uh, if if we, we get, or preparing for court, if I wasn't in court all week, if we get that lesson out, I'm not going to be able to teach all the way through it this week. So if you don't get a hard copy of the lesson and you want one, email Brent, you can get one. It goes into more depth than I'm able to when I'm up here speaking. So those lessons are available. Now, having said that, let's get into God's CV. Obviously, in Scripture, he didn't write a CV per se. What God has done is, is, is more than paper could contain. Certainly more than I could comprehend or communicate. So within the framework, what I've tried to do with hopefully a good dose of humility, recognizing I'm not going to be able to do it even remotely justly, is I've tried to pull out for God's CV some characteristics and traits and some actions that are worthy of our scrutiny, our prayerful, thoughtful meditation. Some of them are actions that we recognize are good. Some of them are actions that leave us very uncomfortable. 
but we need to understand them nonetheless because this is our God. So within the framework of that, we've, we've really been honing in on this idea that God is love, but it comes as a startling statement to many of us to think through that God not only loves, but God also hates. We used as an example Matthew 13, 41, 42 last week. The Son of Man will send His angels. They'll gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus recognized that sin is something that God hates and is something that God will destroy. Sin exists, but sin incurs the wrath of a pure and almighty and all-loving God. That's what we need to explore. How does God's all-loving trait merge with his trait that hates evil? And I want to try and begin putting those pieces of the puzzle together today, but I believe it's probably going to take two more weeks to get them put together properly. So we will begin. We begin with a comment. Hold on one second. Let's make sure this is there. We begin with an approach to this that's based upon, are you ready to grimace? Physics. There. Doesn't that make you happy? How many of you took physics. I'm impressed. How many of you liked physics? Okay, and other than the people who went to Texas A&M, because I think if you liked physics, you probably did. How many of you who liked physics went to Texas A&M? Okay. Uh, Wow. Okay, yes. Um, Some people, when you mention physics, which are the laws of the physical universe, some people, when you mention physics, get all excited. Some people, when you mention physics, run for the door. And then like Goldilocks, some are in the middle and they can handle it, but it's not really their cup of tea. So let me make a suggestion. All of us know some basic physics. We just may not call it physics. We may call it the facts of life. If I drop this highlighter, how many of you are willing to wager money it flies to the ceiling? (laughs) Nobody. Now, we didn't say it's the law of physics. We can call it the law of gravity. We can call it whatever we want. But we know I drop this and absent some intervening gust of incredible wind or paper or something stopping it, it's falling. I knew it was going to do that. I did not even practice it. (laughs) I was confident. That is, yes, it's a law of physics or... That's just the facts of life. You drop something and it falls. It doesn't fly to the ceiling. We live in a cause and effect world. We live in a world where if you do, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. 
We live in a world where if you sit and spend all of your time on a sofa watching the Olympics while you stuff your face with every kind of junk food known to man, yes, you will be smiling. But you will not qualify for the next Olympic trials. That's a fact of life. If you have a plant that is a plant needing water that cannot draw vape water out of the, the humidity in the air like maybe an orchid or something. If you have a plant that needs water delivered to the roots and you never give water to the roots, the plant will die. These are simple facts of life, or you can call them laws of physics and laws of biology and laws of chemistry. Call them what you want. The point is, we live in a cause and effect world where things act by certain laws and rules. And if something happens, there is generally a reaction to that something which occurs. That's simple. You with me? Okay, this is important. Because you don't have to be Newton, Isaac Newton, to understand these ideas. I think Newton's the one who put forward the idea of gravity, which held sway his laws of gravity until uh, Einstein kind of changed the perspective on gravity a little bit. But it's still basically what we know and observe. Now, I, I've got news for you. I've been talking about how important it is for us to let God tell us who He is. But that doesn't mean, as I explained last week, that we can't get some idea of God simply by looking around us. Because we can the laws of nature reflect certain aspects of the one who created nature. So think about looking in a pond and you can see in a still pond the reflection of what's above the pond. In the same way, it may not have 4D digital clarity... But we can see in nature certain attributes and aspects of the nature of God. Now you might be saying, I'm not sure that's biblical, Mark. And if you're saying that, that's always a good question to ask. But it's biblical. This is what Paul said in Romans 1.20. Paul said that God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, and, underscore for this class, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived. You can see them ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So in what God has made... We are able to see his invisible divine nature. We can perceive it. It, it, it. it should be something that is 
observable to us. So nature reflects aspects of God. I'm going to suggest to you it's very scriptural to add to this. And the fact that we live in a cause and effect world, in some sense, reflects the divine nature of God. God is a cause and effect God. I don't mean this simply in an impersonal way. God is a personal God. But cause and effect is part of who he is. And love and hate are part of that cause and effect. God loves us. What is good for us, he loves. God loves us. What is evil and bad and destructive to us, he hates. And this is wrapped up in cause and effect because God himself is 100% pure. We've got to realize if God hates evil, he hates evil. And that's a problem. Because all of us have sin. All of us have evil. Sin is not something that, well, yes, but that's a marshmallow sin, not a sledgehammer sin. Sin is sin before God. And Paul said in that same passage where he talked about God's divine nature is revealed in this world of cause and effect. He said earlier, just two verses before that, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now that's not some. That's not the righteousness. It's hot in here. No, I'm just... I had a t-shirt on. That is not God's wrath is revealed against some ungodliness. Against some unrighteousness. Or God's wrath is revealed against really bad ungodliness. Or really bad unrighteousness. No. Paul says all. He puts the Greek pos in there. It's all. God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. Now, women, I want to tell you something. Paul's using the word anthropos, which we have a nice translators who translate it men. But what it means is people. So you are women. You are women. You're men too. You're just women men. In this sense. So don't think, yeah man, God's going to get rid of the men. I mean, if Brent had this passage, he'd be up here saying all of the men are going to hell and only women are in heaven. That's not what it says. It's talking about everybody. God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of all of us. We're in trouble. 
We've got to understand that sin is not just something that's a marshmallow bad. It's an evil that the perfect, pure God cannot, will not tolerate. Can't. It's not possible. Well, God can do anything. No. He can't. He cannot tolerate evil and incorporate it into himself. God cannot lie. God cannot sin. God cannot. I thought he was God. Yes, he's God. Doesn't that mean he can do everything? No. God cannot create a rock too heavy for God to lift. That's silly. That's not scriptural. Scripture says that God has unlimited power, yes. But he doesn't have unlimited power to be something that he's not. And he's a 100% pure God. God and sin can't bosom up against each other. And partner together. God will never promote sin. God will destroy sin. That's what he does. Sin is evil. He hates sin. He will destroy all unrighteousness. All ungodliness. All sin. He's destroying it. Now, when I say that nature reflects aspects of nature's creator, we've got to understand this. We live in a world of cause and effect. We live in a world of laws of nature. We don't live in the Harry Potter world. And God teaches us that sin is destructive. It's destructive right now and it's destructive eternally. Paul explains it in this same train of thought in Romans 1. And if we don't get this, we don't understand the good news of Jesus. Paul explains it. He says, look, God gives these people who don't understand, who don't accept him, who don't acknowledge, to a debased mind. This is the result of sin. They're filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Sin breeds sin. All manners of sin. Evil. Covetousness. It's easier to say in the Greek. Covetousness. The tendency to covet, as I would translate it if I were going to pronounce it. I mean, you ever see somebody who's got something you wish you had? Malice, full of envy, well, I don't really do that. Murder, I don't do that. Strife, I don't know what that is. Deceit, well, I mean, come on, maybe a little. Maliciousness, well, I mean, that's just being playful. Gossips, let's skip that one. So, seriously, did I tell you about Louis Miori? Slanderers. Haters of God, insolent, haughty. Haughty? Arrogant, prideful? I'm so thankful I'm above that. 
<laughs> Let me brag to you. Let me boast about how I'm not haughty. Boastful. Whoops, I take back that boast. He's nuzzling up some that are in my heart and my mind and my life right next to murder. Inventors of evil. Disobedient to parents. Sorry, mom. (laughs) Foolish. Faithless. Heartless. Ruthless. Those are consequences in the here and now of sin. That's what it stirs up in us. If you're struggling with gossiping, if you're struggling with covetousness, got it? Not that I'm proud of it. I'm not boasting that I got it. If you're struggling with boasting, if you're struggling with disobedient parents, we've got young kids in here. This says we need to focus on rooting out sin in our life in all sorts of ways because it will breed sin. And then look what else Paul adds. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Of course we give approval. It's not so bad if everybody does it. But Paul is saying sin is destructive now, but it's destructive eternally. Everyone deserves to die. An eternal death. Poof. Gone. Extinction. God is bent on destroying evil. And we do not live in a Harry Potter magical world where sin, yes, it destroys and it brings evil and it brings the wrath of God, but surely not for us. God can change who He is for me. After all, out of these 8 billion people in the world, doesn't it, really doesn't it revolve around me? Can't God change His character and nature for me? Does he have to be so, oh, oh, about sin with me? Come on, let sin ruin everybody else's life, but this is me. I have a good heart sometimes. And we think God's going to just wave a Harry Potter wand and cause and effect is no longer going to be there? Doesn't work that way. So, To think about this deeper, I want us to think through one more related trait of God. God is a just God. Always. Think of justice as consistency. Think of justice as Something happens, there is a just consequence. Now you might be saying, well, but wait a minute. Gossiping, a just consequence is not zap, you're dead. Actually, yes. In the pure, uh, look, Adam and Eve got booted out of the garden and got all of these curses because they ate the fruit they weren't supposed to. 
They rebelled against God. When you do something that's sinful, you're rebelling against the Lord who made you. You're setting yourself up as the moral cop. You're the moral God. You get to decide. Forget him. Well, I'm not really going through that academic process. That's what we're doing when we sin. And ignorance is no excuse. Because God's a perfect and pure God. And He cannot partner with us just because we're ignorant sinners. It's not His character. It's not who He is. Yes, He loves us. Yes, He wants to be in a relationship with us. But He cannot truck with sin. Law has always been the justice that exists in the wrath that God brings on sin. So what is, what is law? Well, in America, we have laws. We change the laws. We, laws in our legislatures changes the laws. You know, Sam Harless is going to Austin. He's a state legislator, state rep for me. He's going to change the laws. He's going to make them better, more fair, etc. Fine. Law, though, has always been about paying cause and effect appropriately with sin, with something that's wrong. God sets out law to Moses. He says, don't do this. If we sin, justice demands the penalty for the sin be paid. Sin brings wrath and destruction from a holy and pure God. That's on his CV. We can't run from that. It's a fact. It's the truth of God. I cannot anymore change that about God than I can just decide, okay, well this time though I'm going to make the marker fly to the ceiling instead. No, we're, we're, this is not Harry Potter land. I don't have a wand that I can wave that will change these things. Can God alter the nature? Well, yes, of course God can. He made nature. But God can't alter who he is. And nature reflects that. Nature itself cannot alter nature. Nature lives by the laws of nature. God exists with the laws of God, with the reality of God, with who he is. And he is unchanging. He cannot, will not, does not change. So that's who we've got here. And God's always made this real clear about what law is. God's never hedged with people. God said to Moses, when you, you tell the people that if the people mistreat foreigners and the foreigners cry out to me, I will hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I'll kill you with the sword. That's God talking to Israel, his beloved. God never pulled a punch. God never said my wrath is a pretend thing. God's wrath is very real because sin is destructive. Sin itself needs to be destroyed. Sin's not doing you or I any favors. And it's not doing God any favors. 
So God sees what sin does and God will have nothing to do with it except, oh, don't get me wrong. He'll bring good out of it. He'll, 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 he'll find a way to come victorious over it and all the rest. But God's not the sin promoter. And God's going to destroy it. Here's another passage. God says to Moses, I've seen these people. They're stiff-necked, proud, arrogant, unbending, haughty. Therefore, leave me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them, cause and effect. And then I'll make a great nation out of you. Cause and effect. That cause and effect, by the way, teaches us also that God recognizes that someone can stand in the way. Because there's going to be one who's like Moses, but greater, who's going to stand in the way. And there's a prophetic word inserted into God's proclamation there. But God's not pulling any punches. Wrath, justice means wrath burns upon sin. This isn't only in the Old Testament. This isn't, well, yeah, that God, he was mean back then. No. Jesus in John 3.16 said a verse almost all of us know. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him won't perish, but will have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Why? Because the world was already condemned. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but he sent him in to save the condemned world. John comments on this later in John 3. The writer John, the apostle John, cousin of Jesus, apostle. He comments on it later on and he says this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son will not see life. But on him the wrath of God remains. Doesn't say it comes. It's already there. God's wrath is on sin. God's wrath is on evil. That's a fact. That's inherent in his nature. You can't wish it away. You can't ignore it. You, can't, you, you, can, you can turn your eyes from it, but it doesn't make it go away. You can be ignorant to it, but it doesn't make it any different. That's a fact. So now we've got an issue here. God is perfect and just, and we're sinners deserving death. The Bible teaches that the cross is the meeting place between God's love and His purity and His wrath and His justice. We've got God. God's 100% pure. He cannot fellowship with evil. Darkness has no room in light. You cannot, to use John's analogy in his, in his epistles, you can't take a room of full, intense light and say, hey, I'm going to make some darkness here in the middle. Darkness cannot exist in light. Evil cannot exist in God. Can't happen. But we're evil, and as a result of this cause and effect world... And nature of God, his condemnation and his wrath and the destruction of evil means our condemnation, our destruction. 
We've got to find some kind of righteousness before this God. And it's not coming from what anything we've done. The wrath of God has to be satisfied. When I was a child, I used to think, okay, I mean, it's a big deal. Jesus died for my sins. I get that. I get it. I get it. It's a big deal. But I mean, if it's such a big deal, why didn't God just do it some other way? There is no other way to satisfy the wrath of God. Evil demands, the just God demands justice for evil. Evil, wrath, death, that's it. And that's part of the just God, that's part of who he is. So we see the real wrath of God on Jesus when he's on the cross. When Jesus is on the cross, we are observing God's wrath that belonged on our sin. Jesus hasn't deserved it. There's no reason for God's wrath to be on Jesus. But God's wrath is there because of our sin. Now, we often think that the death of Christ on the cross was simply a physical crucifixion of God-man Jesus, of Jesus Christ. But we fail to understand a great deal of the depths and a great deal of the mysteries that are hard to fathom and, and to some degree unfathomable of what actually transpired during that time. Look at this passage Luke 22 41 to 44. I'm going to put it on the Elmo in a moment. But I want you to see that something mind boggling is happening at the cross. Luke 22 41 through 44. We'll start in verse 39. All right. Jesus goes out. He's just had the Last Supper with the apostles. Jesus goes out to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place where he wanted to be, he said to them, you pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and he prayed. He said, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, giving him strength. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. You know... There's something mind-boggling happening here. And let me give you some thoughts on this for 
it. And we're going to explore this in, in great detail over the next two weeks, I expect. Jesus is not simply a man going to die. We live in an age where we've seen many of you in this room or watching are first responders. You put your lives on the line all the time. Heavens, a police officer just walking up to a car to write a ticket. is putting her or his life on the line. Anybody who serves in the military. And they see, they, 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 if they get put into a battle zone, their life is on the line. There have been people who've thrown themselves on grenades to save the folks around them. I really don't doubt, I really don't doubt, I would in a heartbeat take a bullet for my kids, for my wife, my family. I, don't, I, don't, I really, maybe, maybe I'm, I'm disingenuous in this, but I really don't think I would think twice about it. So Jesus is about to go die. And it's causing him such agony that God sends an angel to strengthen him. And his sweats like blood. I mean, okay, it's not going to be fun to die, but I've seen people much more nobly face death. Here's the key. Jesus wasn't simply going to die. Jesus was going to take on the sins of humanity and incur the wrath of God. When Jesus prays, let this cup pass from me. I'm going to explore that in some more detail next week, but here's the little foretaste. There's an Old Testament expression of God's judgment being poured out of a cup. God's wrath being poured out of a cup. There are some prophetic references to Babylon being God's wrath being poured out on the nations. The Psalms talk repeatedly of the cup of God's judgment being poured out in wrath. There are a lot of contemporary writings to Jesus that we can read about from the Dead Sea community in Qumran. And the Dead Sea Scrolls have these writings that reference the idea of a cup of wrath from God. When Jesus prays, let this cup pass from me. We don't understand the depths of what was happening. We can't understand the depths of what is happening. But we un do know that he's taking on our sins. And somehow in some divine paradox mystery that, that is beyond our understanding... He's going to take on our sins and the unchanging God that lives in constant commune fellowship is going to suffer grievously for our sins. Paul gives us a glimpse of this in Philippians 2. When he's telling us to have a different attitude, don't think of yourselves as better than others. In Philippians 2, 5, he says, have the same attitude in yourself that you find in Jesus, Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, emptied himself 
and became a human. And being found in human form, he humbled himself to the point of death. That's what Jesus did. Death on He did it for us. This emptying of God. He takes on the sins of humanity. And something, something happens in the cosmic truth of God. We're at that point in the cross, the, the, the trysting place where heaven's love and heaven's mercy meet. And heaven's justice meet. Because our sin has to be dealt with. This is a righteousness that we will get. That Paul explained in Romans. I mean, look at Romans 3. This is, this is an incredible charge of God's demands. Everyone is under sin. Everyone is under sin. Look what the Psalms say. None is righteous. Not one. Jesus told us God's judgment, death, will come upon all unrighteousness of man. And yet not one of us is righteous. All of us have God's wrath. No one understands it. No one seeks for God. Everyone's turned aside. We're worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Not even one good deed. Luther said even the best of human deeds is tainted with at least a little bit of selfishness. Isaiah said the best human deeds are like filthy rags before God. Their throats an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. There's no fear of God before their eyes. By works of law, by what we do, by self-righteousness, no human being will ever be justified that word justified is the same root as justice same root as just there's a whole group of words in the Greek that come from this word DK D delta iota I K long E an eta DK and out of those DK words you get justice you get just you get righteous, you get righteousness, you get a whole host of different English words translating them. But they're all the same idea. They're all this recognition that there is a consistency and a justice and a wrath that comes against sin. And we're all under the wrath of God, save for Jesus Christ taking it from us unto himself. You cannot get any clearer image of incurring the wrath of God than he's on the cross and the sky goes black. As if the heavens have been closed and every light in the heavens no longer shines. And God's judgment is upon Jesus. 
So we want to get into that. We're going to look at the cup in more detail. We're going to look at Isaiah 53 and what it has to say about Jesus being our substitute. That by his stripes we're healed. Because he takes on the wrath. And this is the good news that Paul's got. He says, but there is a dikaios. There is a righteousness of God. That's been manifested apart from what you and I do. Because Jesus was absolutely faithful. Look, Jesus, when, when God is Jesus, God in Jesus, Jesus was not all-knowing. He did not have the mind of all-knowing God in him. You say, well, that doesn't sound right. Well, I'm sorry. That's the Bible. The human brain couldn't understand all of God. Jesus had a, a human skull. And a human brain. That's why Paul says he set aside the fullness of God. I mean, Jesus said in Matthew 24, you want to know when the Son of Man's coming again, when my second coming is? Only God knows. I don't even know. So here's Jesus at the cross or in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's about to take on the cup of God's wrath and judgment. And he doesn't know what's going to come out of this. He's just got to trust God. And that produces sweat. That looks like great drops of blood. And the need for strength and the agony he experienced. He does not know what God, but he's faithful and he trusts God. And the writer of Hebrews will say that Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. It is his trust in God that took him to the cross and allowed him to take on the sins of the world. And that in our cause and effect God, because Jesus himself could not be destroyed, allowed God to resurrect him. And Paul says in that same Philippians passage, he emptied himself, took the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore... Cause and effect. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's who we are. Yes, amen. And that's who we are. So we have a righteousness available to us who just trust in him. I don't have enough faith. But he's the author of my faith. He had enough faith. He did it. He, he took the price. Justice has been met. God didn't just say, well, it's what's a few sins among friends. No, God can't do that. Now, I want to explore with you what happened at the cross. It's mind-boggling. And I've got a lot to tell you about next week. But now we need to end. So where do I take from this? Where do I go? First of all, I do think it's right for me to look for God around me. I like that passage from Paul. I like to see consistency in nature and know I've got a consistent God. I like to know that God's reliable. Just as the sun. I, honestly, I, I will wager any amount of money with any of you. I'm not a betting man. I do not like to bet. God taught me early. I bet like something and I lost. Then I bet something and I lost. 
That was like when I was three or four. No, I mean, I learned real early. Everything I bet loses. But I will bet you any amount of money that the sun rises in the east tomorrow and not the west. I'm betting on God and the consistency of nature. God is just as consistent. The death of Jesus is just as consistent. Second thing, I'm going to accept my sin as sin. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm not going to lightly. I'm not going to say, well, but in the grand scheme of things, I do more good than I do bad. I'm not that bad. I'm trying hard. I'm getting better. Those that know God's righteous decree, though they know it, that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. I'm not sugarcoating my sin. I know it's destructive. I know it's bad. I thank God he's forgiven me and he's paid that wrath for me. But that doesn't mean now, yippee ki yay I can do as I want. And then the last thing is I'm going to embrace the cross of Christ. Whoever believes in the Son has, whoever puts their faith, that word believe, pistuo is the verb, but it, it's the same word as pistis faith. It means it, 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 whoever puts their faith, their trust, their belief in Jesus has eternal life. Whoever doesn't, uh, hupakuo, obey, hear and respond. The Son doesn't see life. Whoever doesn't obey the Son doesn't receive life. The wrath of God remains on him. I want to close with one of my favorite expressions. One of my favorite sayings from my, one of the key spiritual mentors in my life. He's my, my, uh, one of my Greek professors, my main Greek professor. Harvey Floyd, Dr. Harvey Floyd, who passed away uh, last year. He used to tell us, he would say, the most simple thing about the gospel is that Christ died for our sins. And the most profound thing about the gospel is that Christ died for our sins. I want to explore that with you because it's at the core of the greatness of God as we examine his CV. Can I bless you please in the name of Jesus? Father, I bless my, my friends, my family, my loved ones, my fellow human beings. And we recognize, Father, that we live as sinners under wrath, absent the cross of Christ. So I confess, Father, myself a sinner, but I embrace and trust you, Lord, through Jesus Christ and his price that he paid when he took my sins and died the death I deserve. I, I entrust myself to you for that, Father. And I ask for that righteousness that comes from Jesus. And I ask for that for everyone who's here. That you would touch their hearts and bring them to their knees before you. And Father, we confess even after that, we're still sinners. And we're sorry. And we want to be more obedient in our walk before you. In response to this incredible love that you've got for us. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.